for joining us today for this edition of KYR Podcast Live and our Spotlight on Advocacy. Joining us from the East Coast, we have Joe Harris, Vice President of Government Advocacy for NAR, as well as Drew Myers, our political representative at NAR. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here. Yeah. Also joining me is uh, Richard Wilson, our Government Affairs Director. And in attendance also is our CEO, Steve Stevens. Uh, Richard, I'll hand it over to you to get us started with today's conversation. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Thank you for that introduction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joe and Drew, thanks for joining us. Um, Let's let's talk some advocacy, guys. Um, So starting off, um, you know, we just got done with with May meetings uh, and Hill visits. Uh, have, have you guys had a chance to, to take a break yet and, and, and kind of slow down? Uh, well, it's been, uh, I, I think they've been very successful. Um, and uh, I think having a lot more time to give uh, FPCs an opportunity to meet uh, with their members virtually or in person, depending on what folks are comfortable with, uh, has been a net gain, a net benefit for, for us in terms of the number of folks that are actually having contact with different offices. And um, I was just at our President Circle conference a few weeks ago, and I can tell you, um, you know, the members, it was really NAR's first big in-person event. Uh, so a lot was riding on it. And I can tell you, folks are ginned up. They're excited, they're enthusiastic, um, and I think they understand the role that the realtors are playing in terms of being that bridge, bringing people together is important now more than ever before. So folks were, were, were ginned up. They were excited. Um, glad to be back in person, uh, obviously, but it, it just shows that the work that we are all doing uh, on every level of advocacy at NER, from, from the national to the state to the local associations, is, is very important. It's very important. Yeah, absolutely. We had we had our first in-person meeting uh, last week in French Lake, Indiana, and uh, we have quite a few of our members that are President Circle uh, investors, and they were all talking about the trip and, and uh, spoke very highly of it. So, so great job for the NAR staff of putting that on. Um, so, uh, but yeah, what's the what's the kind of the feel and, and the attitude like on on the hill right now in DC? Well, uh, it's still a little odd. Uh, it's a little weird because you've got the COVID pandemic, obviously, that we're kind of hopefully on the tail end of. But you also have the remnants of the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol. Mm. And there's still a lot of fencing around the Capitol building and the House office buildings, the Senate office buildings, and a lot of the monuments even. Um, and I, and I heard that they kept up some of that fencing around some of the mines because there was a threat that there would be some vandalism. So coupled with the fact that the general public is still not allowed to go into the Capitol or the house office buildings or the Senate office buildings is still a very strange look and feel, but you do sense more and more people are coming into the city. The city is opened back up for all intents and purposes. You know, the restaurants are open, the bars are open. I'm not sure about the museums, but I understand they're going to be open soon. And I understand the fencing is going to come down soon. So before you even get to any of the legislative or policy discussions, you still have the psyche of 
you know, this pandemic and the events that happened at the Capitol earlier this year that still kind of, I think, hover uh, over, you know, the, certainly the psyche of the congressional staffers, I can tell you that much, and the members. Drew, I don't know if you, you know, have noticed anything. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll second all of that. Uh, that, that Joe said, and, I, and I'll just add, um, you know, it, it certainly is nice to kind of get to the end of our mid-year legislative meetings really starting to kick off summer. Uh, you know, it, summer seems to be a, a little slower at times than, than maybe other parts of the year. And, and it gives us an opportunity to take a breath and kind of, uh, you know, think back through um, the success that we had with, with this past mid-year, um, certainly being uh, it looks like the last uh, completely virtual mid-year that we'll have, but it, it's really only a short break, only a short rest, because mm. now we're looking ahead into, uh, you know, congressional in-district work period in August, um, which we uh, generally are, are involved in with, with our FPCs and, and um, state and local associations there in the district. That's just around the corner. And then, of course, um, as Joe alluded to, with, with the PC event being the first big fully in-person event that we've had, uh, more of those to come, right, as we get into the fall and, and, of course, our big annual event happening in San Diego in November. So, you know, certainly uh, a lot going on for us um, in preparation for the fall and, and then, uh, as is always the case in D.C., um, one election ends and the next one begins the next day. So, uh, uh, you know, certainly beginning to prep for what will be a, a busy 2022 with competitive House and Senate races all over the country. Absolutely. Yeah, good. Drew, I know you're a campaign guy. I'm a former campaign guy. We, you got to love campaign season um, and, and getting those campaigns uh, riled up. So, um, I, you know, that, that's one of those things that I, I think kind of gets in your blood and never leaves. So, uh, even even as you move on beyond campaigns or maybe you do something different with your career, it, it, you always, um, as election season rolls around, you always get that itch again. That's right. Um, so let, let's uh, keep talking about Hill visits. Uh, Drew, Drew, you mentioned it. Uh, Drew, you mentioned it just a little bit ago too. Uh, but can you kind of give us an overall, uh, I guess, overview of, of the Hill visits and, and how they went uh, here in Kentucky, but also nationwide? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and listen, kudos to you all, first and foremost, mm -hmm. for, for hosting such successful Hill visits with your delegation. You did it yeah, last absolutely. year. You did it last year when, when we went virtual um, and, and pretty short notice uh, and did it again this year. I, I know the, the planning and coordination takes a lot of time, a lot of staff time and energy. So uh, Steve, Richard, Paul, thank you um, for, for the time and energy that you put into that. And of course, you know, your leadership as well, who are very involved uh, and your FPCs, who, who you do such a wonderful job with engaging um, in these types of events. So, um, uh, you know, with regard to our uh, Hill visits kind of nationwide and, and our mid-year meetings, uh, again, uh, very much a success uh, for year two of our virtual mid-year meetings. Uh, on a typical year where we fly everyone into DC, what you all are used to in the past, and what we will be looking forward to next year. Uh, you know, for these in-person legislative meetings and Hill visits, we, we generally host about 10,000 realtors. Uh, this year in a virtual setting, we had over 15,000 registrants 
uh, and some pretty big viewing statistics for our events as well, and including I think about 12,000 Facebook views of NAR 360. Um, you know, our FPCs have already made over 650 contacts this year, uh, of course, conveying our, our legislative priorities to their members of Congress and, and staff. Um, and we expect that number to continue to rise as we head into August and, and kind of build on that momentum that, that we really started. Uh, you know, it really as early as February and March with kind of the announcement of our advocacy agenda. Uh, that, of course, is, is vetted and built through our committee process uh, and then using that to develop talking points and, and, and with our FPCs in May and June and their meetings of Congress. Uh, and, and I expect that that will carry through uh, into August, into the remaining of the year. Um, and, and listen, with all that said, with all of the success that we've had over the last two years, hosting all of you know, the virtual meetings that we've had and certainly two virtual mid-year meetings in a row, I'm really excited that we've now announced that next year we will return to in-person meetings in DC uh, and we'll provide a, a virtual access pass for anyone who's unable to travel. Travel, So really it, kind of the best of both worlds. Awesome. Good, that's great. Yeah, we, I know that's, I'll speak for Richard and say we're excited about in-person again uh, that there's, a, there's a, no substitute for handshakes and face-to-face -face for sure. Um, now, Drew, getting in a little, a little more detail, you recently sent the states that you represent an email regarding FHFA and short-term rental units and condos, co-ops, and planned development projects. Can, can you go into a little more detail for us on that issue? Sure. Um, so in October of 2020, uh, Fannie Mae modified its, its lending rules to tighten parameters on uh, lending on what are called condo tells, which are, are properties which uh, that have significant short-term rentals and hotel-like amenities, um, often in resort towns and along the coast, that kind of thing. Uh, since that time, uh, in late 2020, NAR has raised concerns with Fannie Mae um, that these modifications essentially make things less clear for lenders and buyers and, and can lead to inconsistencies ultimately could lead to restrictions in financing in markets with large numbers of second homes, uh, even when these specific properties may actually have excellent underlying loan values. So, um, you know, the modifications, I think, also don't allow for condo boards or HOAs to appeal when they think that Fannie Mae has incorrectly designated their property. So several um, concerns that we've raised uh, with Fannie Mae and, and, and the FHFA uh, has recently acknowledged that, uh, I think they called it recent industry feedback, indicates that their, their modifications could have potentially created confusion. So, um, which, is, which is a great first step. So the next step in this process, I think for us is uh, this official request for input from the FHFA. Uh, it, which they've sent out to industry stakeholders um, and the public, which uh, is, is what I shared in that email last week. So, um, so certainly something that we've been involved in uh, and that we'll continue to, to engage in and, and kind of track this issue with the FHFA um, as it progresses and, and certainly keep you all updated uh, on, those, uh, on those things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess speaking of tracking issues, uh, Drew, Andrew, uh, what are some 
what are some issues that you all are tracking right now um, that, that you think here, folks here in Kentucky should, should kind of keep their eye on uh, or your ears open for? Um, specifically, I, I know Shannon McGann just uh, put something up on the hub about eviction moratorium. Uh, can you speak to that as well, but also, you know, other issues that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, sure, Richard. And, and that it's good. I think that you point out the CDC uh, eviction moratorium Supreme Court ruling. Um, and, and I'll touch on that. I, I, I will say, um, and I know Joe will, will give you kind of the inside scoop and the details here. Um, because he knows this uh, inside and out. And, and, and he and I have talked a lot about this because I hear this from states all the time. Uh, and that's, that's infrastructure. Uh, it's what the administration's talking about. It's what Congress is talking about, among other things, certainly. Uh, and, and it's certainly a, a big uh, piece of the puzzle this year for us. Um, and so I, I get questions from states all the time, what's going to happen in Congress with infrastructure? Will an infrastructure package get done? What will it include? Um, and, and I'm certainly uh, looking forward to hear, hearing the latest on that from Joe uh, here in a minute. The one um, thing that I'll touch on just with the CDC, kind of give a little bit of background and then ultimately the, uh, the recent ruling uh, by the Supreme Court, which was a, a victory for, for real estate, for the industry and, and for private property. Um, as you know, and all your listeners, the CDC acted last year uh, in, in 2020 to ban all evictions during the public health crisis. Um, the eviction moratorium was then extended several times through 2020 under the Trump administration uh, and then uh, in 2021 under the Biden administration. Um, in 2020, with the backing of NAR and, and guidance from NAR, the Georgia and Alabama Association of Realtors, the state associations in those two states, sued in federal court, claiming uh, the CDC lacked statutory authority to ban all evictions. Uh, and in May, a federal judge agreed, uh, and, and she struck down the ban as unlawful nationwide. Now, although that was a favorable ruling, and, and we certainly won that case, the judge also ultimately issued a stay of her ruling pending an appeal by the government, uh, kind of a, a, a legal thing there. So with so many of our members and, and housing providers suffering under financial strain, and, and we heard um, from, from mom and pop landlords uh, specifically, and, and, and as well as others, members all over the country uh, throughout last year and early this year, uh, we appealed immediately to the DC Circuit Court and then ultimately the Supreme Court to lift the stay. Uh, and, and last week, uh, this was what you heard about, what made news, the headlines, four Supreme Court justices ruled uh, to end the stay immediately uh, and therefore the eviction ban. Um, in other words, they agreed with the merits of our case that the CDC acted unlawfully. A fifth judge, and this is where maybe it gets a little tricky, uh, also agreed on the merits of the case, but he also uh, stated and, and, and wanted that the, uh, for the ban to remain in place for a few more weeks through the end of July to allow more time for an orderly transition. The bottom line here with all of it is, is this is really uh, a win for the real estate industry. Um, a majority of the Supreme Court justices are now on the record agreeing with the merits of our case that the CDC exceeded its existing statutory authority to ban all evictions. So 
although the ban is here still for just a couple more weeks through the end of July, um, again, this is still a big win for property rights and for NAR because the CDC should no longer uh, and never again be able to do this um, in an emergency without going through Congress. Uh, and importantly, for the first time, we now know that the CDC eviction ban is officially coming to an end. Yeah, that <clears throat> that last sentence you just said was is kind of key. It's it's good to finally know an end date, yeah. a, an end date that's set in stone, and it's Absolutely. it's good for those landlords to to finally hear that and see that. So, Joe, anything further to add as far as issues you are seeing? Yeah, so I think uh, Drew did a really good job of, uh, you know, talking about obviously one of the big issues that, that uh, certainly we have been talking about on the Hill and also obviously several of our state associations. Uh, the CDC eviction moratorium is a difficult thing to message because you don't want to come across during the time of a pandemic as supporting people getting evicted from their homes. So right. the the, the fine line that we had to walk as lobbyists when we were talking to members of Congress about this and members of the administration was difficult. Um, but at the end of the day, we are here to, uh, to support our members, to support their businesses. Uh, and uh, when they're not getting rents or their back owed rents, uh, bills are not getting paid, uh, you know, repairs aren't getting made, uh, it's just, it, it was important for them to see another side of this issue. Uh, so we are very supportive. And of course, we were amongst the first groups to call for rental assistance to say that, hey, we agree. You know, now's not the time to be evicting people from their homes, but there's got to be support on the back end of that for folks who are actually housing providers, because the end result is that they're not going to be able to provide housing, which is what you all you people want. So it, it was that message. Um, it was many, 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 many months in the making. Uh, as Drew indicated, we have a win. We have a win and we don't tout our wins enough. This time we're touting our wins. Um, and, and obviously having that statement from Supreme Court is pretty big. Um, but Drew also mentioned infrastructure. I mean, that's something that you all probably heard a lot about. Um, a bunch of deals are out, or a bunch of uh, frameworks are out there. Obviously, the president has his own sort of comprehensive framework uh, that includes physical infrastructure as well as, uh, you know, what they call human infrastructure, which is more healthcare, childcare, that sort of thing. Um, but to, to the Biden's credit, he's from the very beginning, he's always been a negotiator. He's always been somebody who has wanted to work across the aisle. That's what he has a track record of doing that in four decades in the Senate. So we knew going in um, that it was a negotiation. They might have started at three trillion, and now they're at about a trillion. Uh, you know, we know that he reached a deal with 21 bipartisan senators a couple of weeks ago. Um, but that's just for the framework. There was no legislative text attached to that. So you still have the issue um, of, of how exactly this is all going to come together in legislation, what the pay for are going to be. But I also know, while all this bipartisan discussion is going on in the Senate, and we do expect the bill to originate in the Senate, um, 
We also know that there's a track for reconciliation perhaps on the House side, which is an area that I know uh, Chairman John Yarmouth, our very own John Yarmouth, who, since I'm mentioning him, congratulations to him on being one of the most recent president circle uh, targets. Um, as many of you know, we, we select our, our big realtor champions uh, every year uh, who've indicated over and over again their accessibility to our members, uh, their willingness to work with us, um, actually keeping us at the table. And John Yarmouth checks all those boxes. He's, he's uh, extremely supportive. He has a great relationship with John Weichel, his FBC, as we all know. So congrats to him on, uh, on being named a President Circle target. But he's indicated uh, before they went to recess that uh, he plans to hold the committee markup uh, on a budget resolution next week uh, to prepare for floor consideration the following week. So that's the week of the 12th when they get back, uh, they're gonna mark up a budget resolution. So I, there are no details about what's gonna be put in there, but my guess is they're keeping the option of having a reconciliation bill open. Uh, and, and Speaker Pelosi has been very public and very uh, insistent that she will not consider a bipartisan infrastructure bill until and unless there's also a second larger human infrastructure package that they've had on the past reconciliation. Now, now whether or not she can do that, that is a completely different topic. Uh, but that is at least what she's saying, I think, to keep the base of the party engaged to let them know that they have a voice and that she you know, hasn't forgotten that they want a larger package. But in addition to that, you also have the SALT issue that is playing uh, very large. We, at the President Circle Conference that we just referenced, we had Representative Tom Swazi from New York and Representative Young Kim, a Republican from California. They both are co-chairs of the bipartisan SALT Caucus. And I think they have something like 25 members uh, so there are about at least 10 Democrats on record as saying, unless there is some type of SALT, state and local tax deduction um, fix in the infrastructure bill, they don't intend to vote for any tax increases until they address SALT. Um, and we have, of course, taken the opportunity to talk about the marriage penalty. Because as you know, the cap is $10,000 for both single filers and joint filers. We think that 10 should be 20 if you're filing jointly. It's just the right thing to do. Uh, it doesn't punish people for actually being married. Um, you know, so we are, we've taken that opportunity to push that angle. Full repeal because of the expense, probably not likely. But some type of middle ground approach like that is a little easier on the bank account. And right now, they're looking for every dollar they can for this infrastructure bill. So there's a lot going on. Uh, I wish I could tell you how this thing is gonna shape up. I, I will tell you that we support the Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, they're the caucus made up of uh, 60 members, 30 Democrat, 30 Republican in the House. Their job is to come together and, and try to work on issues that people can agree on. They have endorsed the bipartisan Senate framework. So that is an awfully big voting block uh, to get this thing um, passed in the House. And right now, um, from, what, from what I'm hearing, you know, Chairman or um, Minority Leader, Leader Kevin McCarthy 
I don't think is necessarily inclined to support, you know, a bipartisan bill. Uh, they, I think they want it to be smaller. They want it to be more narrow. And then you have Pelosi who says she's not going to support it unless there's a reconciliation that runs parallel. So I don't know where this leaves it. All I know is that uh, we've been uh, having the conversations behind the scenes, trying to be as helpful as we can uh, to get something done, because this is an opportunity to do something that I think people on all sides, both sides of the aisle, agree needs to be done. Um, so obviously, with infrastructure, we have to also talk about the potential tax changes that come with that to pay for this thing. And so, uh, as you know, the talking points that we charge the FPCs, you know, with 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 discussing with their members include 1031s, cap gains. I'm not going to get into all that. You, you've talked about it ad nauseum at this point, but I think we've done a very good job of of, of beating the drum on why. Uh, tax hikes for small businesses like cap gains increases or capping 1031s, um, that is not, is going to backfire. And, uh, and particularly in the case of 1031s, the original projection they had in terms of money they were going to raise from, from capping that, uh, it actually came back and scored lower because what they found is that folks would just sit on their property. They wouldn't do anything. They, they were not going to sell. If they, if they can't transfer property and defer cap gains and tax due on that property, they're just going to sit on it until the next administration comes along. So I think that the original projection that they were looking at, eh, kind of rosy. So those numbers aren't looking as robust. So I, I, I'm hopeful that they're going to, to stop looking at 1031 as a pay for, um, you know, for this infrastructure bill. So, uh, and then one thing, another thing I've got to mention, because it's it's a big topic, housing inventory, the housing shortage. We hear about it everywhere we go. We see it. Um, members of Congress actually come up to me and say, dude, my daughter has been trying to buy a condo and she's put in eight offers. And the last offer, she got beat by an all cash off. I was like, sir, ma'am, stand in line. You know, this is happening all across the country. And it's great for sellers until the person who sells that house tries to look for a house to move into. So this, this situation is, is in the short term, great for generating a lot of dollars. It is terrible long-term for our industry. We cannot have a situation where people don't have access to affordable housing, where the first time home buyer is essentially locked out of the process because they didn't have a house in Greenwich that they sold because they retired living in Greenwich because the taxes were too high. And then they took that $3 million and then bought all cash somewhere else, locking other people out of the market. Um, we've got to have affordable entry-level homes. Uh, and we've got to get people moving again. Uh, and the only way to do that is to show that there's inventory for them to move into. Otherwise, rather than having folks move from house to house, you're going to have folks who decide they're going to just add on to the house they're already in. Uh, and obviously those projects are on hold because of lumber prices, which is what we're hearing a lot about. So even the economic uh, activity that's supposed to be occurring because people are actually doing home improvements isn't happening because projects are on hold because of the price of lumber and the price of all other inputs. Um, so 
the housing inventory piece is so important that we actually commissioned a white paper uh, in, uh, in conjunction with the Rosen Group. We are planning to do a, a virtual presentation event and we've invited congressional staff, we've invited uh, folks from the administration and we're presenting this paper uh, which is entitled uh, Housing is Critical Infrastructure. And, uh, and the whole point of the paper and the whole point of the discussion is to talk about the consequences of under investing in housing in the United States, but also offer solutions about what we can do. And obviously the timing of this paper is important because of the infrastructure discussions that are going on. Um, and because the administration uh, has already included proposals to build 500,000 additional homes in the US uh, you know, over the next several years. So I know it's something that the administration is thinking about, it's something that folks on the Hill are talking about. We want to give them the data, the statistics, the research to support why uh, you know, housing should be considered critical infrastructure. Uh, because that, you know, we're a fourth of the GDP, we're a fourth of the economy. And if we have a situation where people are not able to buy homes, sell homes, they're sitting where they are, that is not good long-term for our industry. Um, and it, eventually the business is going to dry up and you're going to see that result uh, nationally, locally. So we're, we're trying really hard to, to, to really impress upon people the importance of this issue. Because as you all know, it's not just the selling and buying of homes, it's all the businesses and all the economic activity that comes from people having to paint, get new carpet, landscape, uh, you know, add on, take away. It's all the economic uh, activity that happens from the sale or the purchase of a home. So uh, I know that's a, I, I'm rambling on at this point, but it, that I did, I did want to mention housing inventory as something that is extremely important issue that we're trying to make an issue. If not for, for this bill, then certainly uh, future bills that come down the pipe. Yeah, I was going to ask about it. And Joe, you've taken <laughs> a good while to go through that. I, I wanted to see what kind of opportunities we have in particular at the state level, as well as what NAR is involved in. Because, you know, traditional economics suggests that, you know, increasing supply should also help in some ways lower that uh, median home price pressure some because, you know, as you say, you know, it's not sustainable to see the increasing price that we have watched for now years uh, as it continues to creep up. I mean, we all at the state level produce housing statistics for, you know, the states that we represent. And we've got a curve that is just a steady, steep climb over the last several years. And at some point, you know, everything breaks. I mean, we can't handle that forever. So I guess the question is in the Rosen Report, I guess we'll have some solutions, I hope, that we can articulate not only at the federal level, but, you know, what about taking it down to the state legislative level as well that we could tr basically translate some of these things into actions that even legislatures can take to help us? because that's what we're looking for too. Uh, state to state, conditions may be a little different from place to place. Um, costs are different, supplies are different. Um, we do hope and see a 
little bit of uh, maybe a reduction on the lumber price. It's come down a little, but not a lot. And we have other things that are, um, you know, supplies, you know, that are affecting home prices. But ultimately, you know, we need uh, we need more construction. Just simply, you know, our home construction industry has our product. We want them to build many more homes uh, to help us because we are recirculating that existing supply over and over again. Realtors are doing well, but that's just not sustainable. So, um, you know, just just hopeful that uh, when that report comes out, uh, we can kind of view it, you know, from a state legislative level too, like through a lens that might help us uh, work on issues here locally. Yeah, and um, you you hit the nail right on the head. And the, the report is ready and we can, Drew, let's get them a copy uh, so that they see the report. A lot, most of the, most of the recommendations contemplated are things that really can only be done at the state level, as you know. The federal government has very few options uh, when it comes to telling state and localities, particularly localities and, and municipalities, what they're able to do with their zoning laws and their zoning restrictions when it comes to single family homes versus multifamily versus real retail or commercial. So what we're trying to do, uh, and there's a bill that's being worked on right now by a member on Ways and Means that would incentivize um, conversion of commercial property, uh, commercial buildings, um, that our zone is commercial uh, and allowing them to be retrofitted into apartments, condos, um, which again will benefit the entry level buyer, the first time home buyer. My first home was a condo in DC, a, a little one bedroom, one bath, nothing special. Took out an FHA loan to do it because that's all I could afford was about three or four percent down as a congressional staffer. News alert, it doesn't pay very well to be a congressional staffer, but that was my little piece of home ownership. So that's what we need to encourage. And if you have the infrastructure there and all you're talking about doing is knocking down some walls, repiping, um, that stuff is not going to come unless there's some incentive. The federal government cannot demand the states and localities do anything when it comes to zoning. All they can do is dangle some carrots out there in the form of tax credits and other incentives. So that's, you're right, that's where it starts. You gotta, and, and we, and by the way, we see states doing that already because they have no choice. It's, it's, an, it's an affordable housing crisis. As you mentioned, some, some, even within a state, some cities are doing a lot worse than some towns just because of the number of people who happen to be in that location. But it has got to be a solution that at the end of the day is, uh, is run by local governments uh, because what we run into is people want to have more housing, but they run into zoning issues, NIBYism issues when it comes to building, you know, multiple level uh, condos or what have you in an area that predominantly single family homes. So it's 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 getting the folks on the ground who are invested in that community who are leaders in that community, who live in that community, to do and make these changes that are difficult changes in a responsible way with stakeholders at the table, but also give them the financial incentive to do it. Um, 
so that's you know that is a, a big piece of of of, of the Rosen study, um, and you know we've our conversations with folks on ways and means have been positive um, because they do understand that this is not an issue that is going to solve itself overnight. It's going to require a bunch of different um, a bunch of different uh, input from a lot of different areas. Um, it's going to but the federal government's got to be there to to sort of say, hey, you know, we're here to support you um, because remember, a lot of you know, COVID has just happened. So it's not like these these states are sitting around flush with cash. Particularly, some of them are, um, but you know, a lot of these cities and localities and municipalities um, have bills to pay um, and um, are going to be dealing with some issues after the government programs run out, which is the second piece of this thing. When it comes to affordability, a key part of making sure that we're not sliding backwards is making sure that if and when we have a rash of foreclosures, which is very likely uh, given the fact that this forbearance uh, has been in place for quite a while. I keep reminding people on the Hill that forbearance does not equal forgiveness. People still have to pay back mortgage payments. And when they cannot pay those back mortgage payments, they will have to go into foreclosure. What happened in 2006 or 2007, 2008, is that when we had mass foreclosures, you had these large companies come in, buy up these houses for pennies on the dollar, and then what happened? They all became rentals. So that exacerbated the housing inventory problem. We're poised to see the same thing happen again if we're not careful and if we're not trying to do the things to prevent wholesale um, you know, foreclosures and also big companies coming in, swooping up again, not learning from the past, buying up those properties and then going or turning around and renting them out as opposed to uh, selling them to a first time home buyer. So we, we've also approached some folks about, for instance, a capital gains exclusion for folks who want to sell, they have to sell to a first time home buyer and then they get their any capital gains excluded uh, or some type of, of, of other incentive. These are the things that we have to do in order to sweeten the pot uh, for folks in a time that's very difficult and a lot of difficult decisions have to be made in the aftermath of this pandemic when, you know, the assistance runs out and the, you know, all, we'll, we'll see where everything shakes out when the dust settles, but we are prepared with solutions and we've been talking about these solutions for some time so that when the time comes for them to adopt something, they're not, you know, we're not scrambling and figuring out what we're going to talk about. We have a game plan. Um, we have certain things we want to talk about. And so that's our plan. So hopefully it works out. Okay. Cool. And gentlemen, uh, one of the benefits uh, we have here of doing this kind of thing via Zoom is we, of course, we have some folks that are online here. Uh, just wanted to quickly open it up and see if anyone had any questions or wanted to jump in with anything. Uh, Gallery, now's your time. If you have anything you'd like to chime in, just introduce yourself quickly. Hey, Drew and, and Joe, thanks for joining us today. We certainly appreciate your perspective, sharing this information with us. One of the concerns I have, and I know there was some talk early about 
increasing fuel tax. And anytime it seems like when taxes go up and the price of fuel goes up, everything goes up with it. If you remember the day of the election, fuel was $1.79 a gallon. I was in Chicago over the weekend. I've seen it at $3.49 a gallon. I don't think now's the time to see a surplus in taxes on the fuel, because I believe if that happens, prices are going to go up across the board, just not on fuel prices. What is your perspective on that? Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Uh, so I think that President Biden spoke specifically to this idea of a gas tax to pay for infrastructure, and he indicated that that would be a non-starter. So he's not entertaining the idea of a gas tax um, to help pay for infrastructure. So uh, at least in terms of the White House, um, that is not going to be an option. I think that seeing the seeing the spike in prices across the country as people traveled over the July 4th weekend, as they you know, traveled Memorial Day, people are actually, I think Congress is loath to do anything that hurts people in a time where you know, they've, they've hurt, we've been hurting enough. So um, from what I'm hearing, that is a non-starter uh, for the White House. Um, so we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a big expert on, you know, why the price of a barrel of oil goes up or down, depending on what country we buy. But I will say that this is an area that uh, is of particular concern uh, to, to folks, not only in Congress, but the White House. I know that uh, people like Joe Manchin from West Virginia is very interested in this issue um, and just making sure that we're making it as, as cost effective for people coming out of this pandemic as possible. So, I hope that answers your question, um, but that does not seem likely to be a pay for um, for the infrastructure bill. Gentlemen, we really appreciate your time. Um, we uh, It's always good to learn. I mean, we know NAR is fighting these battles, but to hear you guys really detail kind of the things that you're paying attention to, the battles you're fighting even before people know you're fighting them. Uh, and then of course, to hear about the detailed paper that's coming out really kind of undergirding your your fight to educate legislators on the underbuilding gap and something that this pandemic has just exacerbated. Obviously, this has been something we've been dealing with for years, uh, and now it's really kind of forced the conversation. So, uh, you know, on, on behalf of us as, as, as just homeowners and, and property owners, thank you for your efforts. Uh, we know you're fighting uh, for yourselves as much as us. Uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. And if I could indulge a few more seconds. Uh, sure. You know, NAR is very well positioned um, because we enjoy very good relationships on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers. So that allows us to withstand the political winds wherever they may blow. And that is no more important than it was this Congress, where you come in, you got COVID, you can't make the usual contacts, they don't have the open houses. So you rely a lot on pre-existing relationships um and we have very strong ones on both sides of the aisle leadership from mitch mcconnell to kevin mccarthy to pelosi uh hoyer and, and others so uh I, I say that um because it's really important and it's really at the heart of what we do we are a political organization but more importantly we're a policy driven organization and our value add to members of congress is research statistics and being able to hear 
from folks on the ground, their FPCs about what's going on back in their states and back in their districts. That gives us a leg up on just about any other organization in DC. So thank you all for, for what you do to make our jobs a lot easier, quite frankly. You know, Drew and I work very well together. We're good friends, South Carolina guys. Um, uh, you're very fortunate to have, uh, to have Drew sort of steering the ship for you here at NAR. So thank you for the time. Thank you guys. Great. Thank you all. Thank you. Outstanding. All right. <clears throat> we'll catch you next time on KYR Podcast Live. Thank you. Thank you.